You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Still the same This week's episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm going to be your host this week. I'm David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. With me this week, as with last week, is Matthew Block in Canada somewhere. I still can't remember where, man. It's only been a week. Where are you? <laughs> I'm in Swan River, Manitoba. Swan River, Manitoba. Very lyrical sounding. I, I feel like we talked about that. It's wider than a mile. <laughs> it's just very cold is what it is here right now. So Excellent. And snowy. Oh, that sounds lovely. Uh, what is it like in uh, Georgia where you're at, Michael Farmer? I think it's 50 degrees today and very sunny. Well, that's all, That also sounds pleasant. Um, it's not without its charms. Yeah. Well, it's a fairly nice day to, today here as well as the, uh, you know, 50-something looking robins that I could see out my window this morning seem to think. Yeah, there's uh, a huge flock of robins right outside my window, too. I don't know what that is. I didn't see that very much in Minnesota. I didn't know that they ran in packs, so to speak, but apparently apparently they do. Yeah. If you, dear listener, have any insight into what um, a mass a mass gathering of robins happens to mean, um, and especially if it's scary and we need to be on guard, uh, please please let us know at uh, the Christian Humanist at gmail com. Well, before we dive into this week's topic, what's on the network? Uh, we actually have a lot of stuff this week. Um, and I have to edit all of it, so uh, kind, of a, kind of a scary week ahead of me. Yesterday, we had our first Christian Humanist Profiles in a while, um, which was my interview with Charles Hughes, who's a poet. Uh, so I interviewed him about his new book, The Evening Sky. Two days from now, Thursday the 4th, we will have this month's Before They Were Live, which happens to be on DuckTales, Treasure of the Lost Lamp. Uh, and then Friday, there's the Christian Feminist Podcast on Brave New World. Sounds well worth downloading, well worth spending some time listening to. And probably there is a City of Man and a Sectarian Review coming at you, but those guys don't put their episodes on the Google Calendar, so I don't know to announce it. So we think of them as just sort of felicitous surprises. When right, they show. yeah. It's very spontaneous. Excellent. Well, our topic this week as uh, I mentioned at the end of last week's episode, is sort of reorienting ourselves uh, towards the beginning of this uh, spring season of 2021, um, kind of taking a look sort of back to the beginning, but also uh, a look towards the present and the future, 
the idea of what does it mean to be a Christian humanist, but in particular, what does it mean to be a Christian humanist for the good of the church within uh, both uh, the church overall, God's large plan of his workings with his people in this world right now, uh, based uh, based in the and flowing out of the uh, redemptive work of Christ but also within local bodies and other other ways of kind of conceiving what you mean by by church. So before we dive into into that that churchly angle Michael can you give us a quick primer on Christian humanism and how you would characterize the way this podcast and network has developed that idea? Sure. Uh, and we talk about this in the first episode of the podcast, which I do not recommend anybody go back and listen to. Um, but it is there. And I think it's the first question in that episode. And we, we, we chose the podcast name to be a little bit provocative because at least in evangelical circles, the word humanism is often caught up with this thing, secular humanism, which is a kind of ethical replacement for religion, I, I would say, is probably a good description of it. But we're using humanism in the older Renaissance use of that term, meaning someone who studies the humanities, and in particular, somebody who reads uh, old books, preferably in the original languages, although um, I don't know how many of us read old books. And I guess you probably read Beowulf in uh, Old English, don't you, David? I have done so. So you're true, um, a true humanist. Well, and you've also... Uh done some translations out of other languages even though they're those books are not quite I, I was going to say not exactly old <laughs> but yeah um so so th that's the way we use it it's we're using it as someone who studies the humane disciplines english philosophy history the fine arts i would say we probably include in there although i know some definitions of the humanities don't um but you know the kind of non-practical uh things you can study So if you look across our, our podcast uh, network and look at the sorts of uh, shows that we've you know, developed over the years and provided space for, um, you'll find things like Book of Nature and Creation Care and uh, talking about you know, different angles on the sciences. And then you have things like, well, your upcoming episode on DuckTales. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> where, where, where do those fit into, uh, those categories you've just developed for us? Well, uh, <laughs> um, uh, they don't really fit a traditional definition of humanism. I would say the, uh, the book of nature and restoration are both science podcasts, although I, I think. Probably both of them take a kind of humanities attitude toward them. You know, Todd Pedler teaches in uh, in a humanities program at Luther College, so I, I think he has a kind of humanities mind, a humanities science hybrid mind, let's say. Um, so I guess we need to broaden our definition of humanism to to to, to really what we're talking about is contemplation. Uh, and maybe I have that on my mind because you and I last night recorded the uh, the episode of the core curriculum on Aristotle's view of contemplation. But I, I think that's a pretty good way to think about uh, what this network does. We, we take a, a more or less long look 
at particular things and uh, and think about them in a Christian way. Is that yeah. fair? Yeah, I, I think that I, th- I think that's a good a, a good extension of it. Um, we consider things that humans do and value worth considering closely, right? And take well, time to do it. That's right. So yeah, the things human beings do well is is, is our old um, our old tagline. I don't know if we still use that or not. I haven't listened to the intro to the show in a very long time, <laughs> to be totally honest with you. Um, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, uh, and even that I think would exclude certain forms of science, right? So, so like, physics is not strictly speaking the study of what human beings do well. It's it's the study of um, of natural forces. But there's a way to talk about physics and to talk about it in a kind of humane way. And I would say the Book of Nature, um, when we're you know blessed enough to have an episode from them, uh, does talk about scientific issues in that way and restoration as well. Exactly. Like, e- even if physics itself is not concerned with the humans, it is humans who concern themselves with physics. Right. <laughs> Anything that you'd want to toss in and add to that, Matthew? No, not really. I, I think you guys cover it pretty well. I mean, just put very simply, Christian humanism is thinking deeply and Christianly about about every aspect of human experience. So. Well, one of the things that we've been uh, trying to do since the beginning, and, and we make those steps back in that, uh, some of these moves back in that first episode that Michael doesn't want you to listen to, dear listener. Um, but I, I think it's, all, again, good to to consider again uh, these ideas and keep them at the fore of our minds. So I'd like to talk theology for a little bit, or rather give you a chance to talk theology, Matthew. What are the biblical and doctrinal ideas that are giving shape and direction and boundaries to Christian humanism? And then when you're done sort of laying that basic groundwork, um, I like to consider maybe how the differences of our ecclesial traditions might lead us to work that out maybe differently. If we're going to talk about the biblical kind of mandate for Christian humanism, I think we really need to start by talking about the doctrine of creation. God created everything, and therefore everything that is exists in an a priori relationship to him. St. John gets to this pretty clearly in the beginning of his gospel when he writes, all things were made through him, that is through Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. And St. Paul says something similar in Colossians when he writes, By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So all things are Christ's and exist through him. And I think when we recognize that, it gives us a starting place for thinking about the world. If all things relate to God, they therefore can be thought about in relationship to him. That's that's particularly true uh, when we think about what it means to be human. Scripture tells us that humanity is made in the image of God and that there's something, therefore, unique about the human experience. The way we think about the world, the way we create, the way we relate to others, all of these things manifest in some way that God-given image uh, that's in all people. But, of course, the doctrine of the fall comes in here, too. The entrance of sin into the world means that creation now exists in tension with God. Um, 
St. Paul tells us in Romans that the whole creation was subjected to frustration because of the fall. And for humanity in particular, that means that the image of God, which remains in people today, is nevertheless marred now. So when we want to think Christianly about the world and our place in it, we have to recognize from the outset that there are certain limits in our ability to understand the world and its creator. Um, those limits, I think, are, are the reason or, or one of the things that necessitates a clearer revelation from God in the form of scripture. Uh, but even though we recognize the world and to humanity today are imperfect, God is still giving us good gifts in the midst of that brokenness. And it's important for Christians to reflect on those good things and to give thanks to God uh, for them. I think that's part of what it means to love the Lord our God with all our mind, learning to embrace the good things God has given this fallen world and to use them well. Because ultimately, these good things are all gifts from God. St. James tells us that every good and perfect lift comes down from the Father of lights. So what are those good gifts? Well, we, we've mentioned them already, things like... Um, art, literature, uh, theology, science, but friendship, family, work, these things are in there too. And theology, of course. They're the, the thousand things that human beings do well, as, as you guys say. These are good things. So when St. Paul calls on us in Philippians to think about everything that is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy, we find then a scriptural mandate to rigorously reflect on the good things to be found in human knowledge and experience. And to be clear, uh, we're not just talking about the human experience of those inside the church. God's good is bestowed abundantly on the whole world. After all, he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, as Jesus says, and sends rain on the just and unjust alike. So we shouldn't be surprised to see God blessing the world, even among those who don't know him. So a Christian humanist, I think then, uh, he looks to recognize the good which God has given through Christians and non-Christians alike and seeks to embrace these good things from God with thanksgiving. So these these are some of the key biblical themes that I tend to think of when, when thinking about a mandate for Christian humanism in Scripture. Um, did anyone else want to add anything else on that before we jump into kind of the denominational tradition and how that informs our understanding of, of uh, Christian humanism? I think you covered it very well. Agreed. Yeah, I, I especially like your angle on uh, br bringing in the emphasis on thankfulness. Um, there is a uh, perhaps a tendency within uh, the humanities or other branches of of academia to consider the the discipline or the subject matter that we pursue uh, to itself be the end of our activity, uh, a sort of ju self justifying thing. Um, but the, the framework that you've laid out for us theologically um, reminds us that I, I'm not necessarily reading literature just for literature's sake, um, but also if it, if it is good, it is a good gift from one who gives good gifts. Uh, so um, the, there, there's always that sort of extra layer. I, I appreciate the way your, your explanation brings that out. Well, how might we uh, how might we formulate uh, these theological underpinnings or the way to practice them faithfully uh, in within our ecclesial traditions? How might how might we what might we emphasize differently? Um, 
I am a um, a weird Southern Baptist, as as Michael will point out periodically. Um, and Michael, you were um, very recently confirmed uh, within the Roman Catholic Church. And Matthew, you are well. Uh, unpack unpack your your ecclesial background, sir. Sure, uh, I'm a Lutheran. I uh, a member of of a tradition which tends to refer to itself as confessional Lutheran, um, meaning we we put a we, we consider the the documents of the Lutheran confessions, the Book of Concord, as as a an authoritative uh, explanation of what our faith is. Um, but in our tradition, one of the things that we have um, is, is a particular understanding of the doctrine of vocation. And I find it helpful in explaining how Christians can find meaning in literary works or art or, or similar things, including those created by non-Christians. Uh, Lutherans understand the doctrine of vocation to mean that God is at work in the world through the everyday lives of everyday people. So when we use the word vocation, we're, we're not meaning it just to refer to the office of the ministry or a monastic community. And we're not meaning it just in the secular sense either, where vocation is kind of synonymous with the word job. Uh, we, we, we include those things in our understanding of vocation, but that's they're not the kind of the end of what we mean. Uh, instead, by vocation, we really mean every legitimate calling a person might have in family relationships, in their job, yes, in their church community, in their citizenship, and so forth. So, it can include the vocation of parents as they care for their children, children honoring their fathers and mothers. It includes your status as a citizen in your local community and in your local country. Well, local might not be the right word there. Uh, it includes your job, yes, and it includes your involvement in your local congregation. Basically, the doctrine of vocation stresses that God is at work under the mask of all of these everyday callings of relationships, work and more. And that all of these things are therefore holy orders in their own kind of way. Because these things are all ways in which God is at work through us to bestow his blessings on other people. Um, and this it's important to understand then that this understanding of, vo of vocation uh, recognizes that God does this work through non-Christians too. So he works through the farmers who provide daily bread that you're praying for. He works through governments to provide peace and good order. He works through the doctor who's helping keep you healthy uh, and through the fast food worker who is serving up the burger you ate on your way to work. Uh, these people don't have to be Christian in order for God to work through them. And he works through them uh, whether they recognize it or not. In the same way, we would say as Lutherans, God works through the creative vocation of writers, actors, music musicians, artists and so forth. When we come across things that are beautiful or true or good, we can thank God for them and embrace them regardless of who has made them, because God is ultimately the source of all goodness and truth. These are just some of the ways in which a Lutheran might articulate the value of Christian humanism in, in our tradition. But of course, as you guys say, uh, you're, you're members of different traditions. How would, how would you approach this kind of thing? Would you do anything differently? I have to say that the doctrine of universal vocation is my favorite part of the Lutheran Church. I, I really, I really think that's dead on. And to the degree that Catholicism is subject to a kind of clericalism where, um, where the priest has a, a higher calling than everybody else, so the, the priest is spiritually better than everybody else. It's not an official Catholic doctrine, but I think it's something we, 
um, we tend toward, and I, I think to the degree we tend toward it, we might uh, be be well served by listening to what Lutherans have to say about universal, universal vocation, because I, I think that is uh, really dead on on how to uh, how to approach one's uh, daily living in the world. Hmm. If I may say something nice about you Protestant dogs. <laughs> What the Catholic Church has going for it, I was big of you. <laughs> what the Catholic Church has going for it, I think, is its Catholicity, the the fact that it's universal, and that the fact that there is a, a, a kind of big tent. Um, there's a lot of people doing a lot of different sorts of things in the Catholic Church, and they're all united in theory um, by their connection to this magisterium that that determines what uh, what healthy and true theology is. But because of that Catholicity, you have really an enormous range of thought on uh, every conceivable subject. And so there's a lot of room for discussion within an overall uh, agreement that I think um, that I think has served Catholic philosophy and theology and aesthetics and science. It's it's served them very, very well over the centuries. And I don't I don't know that there's another Christian group that has uh, as much Catholicity as the Catholic Church, you, you know, I, I I think there's something about that global spread. It's you know millennia of existence that has allowed it to kind of stick its tentacles uh, under every rock in the ocean, if that makes sense. I said tentacles. <laughs> you did. <laughs> <laughs> it is capacious, indeed. What does the Southern uh, Baptist Church have going forward in terms of Christian humanism, Grubbs? Well, if there's uh, if there's anything um, that that Baptists uh, tend to be tend to be good at, it's it's at not regarding um, yeah, there there tends to be a high regard for for the pastorate, but there's also a, a, a very prominent role. Um, of the congregation in in many things, um, congregational worship, congregational singing um, has historically been something that that Baptists have practiced. So that um, you know, hymnals with sheet music and everyone knowing what their parts are, um, uh, you know, that being a regular a regular part um, of worship. You know, so so mus- musical education. Uh, has been one of the features of uh, a kind of low church Protestantism historically, um, particularly in the U.S., but in in other places as well. Uh, so that that music angle, I think, is is, is something that's really, um, I think, really important. Uh, but also, and this is this was something that um, you brought to my uh, attention and emphasized in in a way that I hadn't um, I hadn't really formulated it. Which is uh, the importance of oratory within the Baptist tradition, the re- the rhetorical practice um, in in the homily, but in in other parts of worship as well. Uh, that uh, you know, the the Baptist Church grows out of um, out of a tradition that is that has seen um, the the sermon, the homily, uh, as the center of worship. Um, not the daily or the weekly celebration of Eucharist, uh, and I think 
because of that that orientation in the liturgy, um, the uh, the proclamation of the word took on uh, a uh, an an aspect of uh, what I would call in a good way performative excellence. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that you have you know sort of famous famously people like John Bunyan um, who would preach out in the field as this nonconformist minister uh, and uh, their their accounts of the incredibly erudite um, theologian uh, John Owen going to hear Bunyan out in the fields and being asked by you know some some I, I can't remember which government official it was you know why on earth are you going out into the fields to listen to that tinker um, and Owen's response was something on the lines of if I could preach like him I would give up my education <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, and, it's not and for that, nothing David that the Southern Baptists have produced a lot of politicians and not very many artists y- you know I I, I think centralizing the uh the eucharist is is a kind of a, it's not just an aesthetic choice understand what i'm saying but there's an yes. there's, there's an aesthetics to that that there's not in centralizing the word and so it makes sense that in the baptist church among other things you learn to be a good public speaker and so of course you you produce a lot of politicians yeah for better or for worse uh that has extended you know, not just in in churches of bat of, of Baptist backgrounds, but um, church, but I, I believe it has has its origin in that um, in that Baptistic service. Uh, you see it um, in many churches in the African American tradition, um, where preaching ha- is just a a high art of rhetorical performance. And we've um, we've commented on that in, in some other episodes, but one of those, um, if you, if you want to go back and listen to the episode on um, oh what was his uh, John Weldon, I can't remember James uh, Weldon Johnson. Yeah, James Weldon Johnson. That's who it was. Um, uh, yeah, James Weldon Johnson and his his collection called uh, God's Trombones. Uh, which sort of honors that rhetorical and really poetic uh, tradition in African American church preaching, um, but not just in the sermons, also in the prayers. And uh, that that I think is is one of the one of the ways that that these things that have been traditional, um, maybe to to arts and humanities, rhetoric and music, um, were uh, thoroughly democratized. In a sort of way, um, by by that low church Protestant tradition, um, in a way that I think is really um, really valuable and uh, worth worth consideration, worth honoring. That think about where American popular music would be um, without a low church Protestant choir. True, or, or especially the black church, right? Yes, because I mean, you you don't get rock and roll without black church services. There's there's just no doubt about it. And and one of the interesting things about African American oratory is that it's it's about equal parts rhetoric and music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As someone who is not a terribly good public speaker, I really envy that. Well, most of our conversations uh, in 
the CHP focus on uh, Christian humanism as it's developed um, or sort of focused on the academy or focused on our culture. Um, I'd like for a second to dig into Christian humanism's um, role in the life in the life of the church. Um, we've talked a little bit about the contribution of our of our theological aspect of our theological backgrounds or ecclesial backgrounds, you know, to Christian humanism. How does it look the other way around? What are some ecclesiastical roles or functions that Christian humanism aids or enhances? And maybe along the way, who are some exemplars of that? I mean, beyond beyond Erasmus, like everybody knows Erasmus, he's on the he's on the album art. Um, so I mean, one one thing to point out is that if you're a Protestant, most of the reformers were humanists in a real sense. I mean, in the sense that we use that term, um, they were students of the humanities who came to the conclusions they came to, in part because they um, they were reading these old books. So, I mean, in, in that sense, I don't think it's escapable for Protestants. And I don't think it's escapable for Catholics either, because, um, you know, Renaissance humanism is so uh, closely bound up with, um, with Catholic countries. The other thing I would point out is that uh, the further up the... Uh, Oh, what's what's the way I'm trying to say this? The, the further up the high-low church scale you go, the more likely it is that somebody who studied the humanities designed your worship service, if that makes sense. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, you know, low, low church is less so just because it's it's often less structured um, and, and certainly less connected to what people were doing 1,500 years ago. <laughs> But I'm, I'm thinking in particular of St. Basil the Great, who my understanding largely designed the Orthodox service that's still in use. Um, and so you may not know who St. Basil the Great is, but if you go to an Orthodox service, you have benefited from, um, from the work he did. And the, the same is true of, of, uh, of other high church traditions as well. It's just St. Basil's the one who, uh, who, who comes to mind. The other thing I think that Christian humanism can do is in its in its ability to talk about everything, <laughs> everything from a Christian perspective, it can um, it can it it can allow uh, people who are paying attention, Christians who are paying attention, to uh, to understand the world more. And and the theory behind Christian humanism, at least, is the more you understand the world, the more you understand God. So there is a spiritual purpose to it. And, and with that in mind, I'd like to nominate three exemplars who who are kind of um, encyclopedic in their interests. Um, the first one is Thomas Aquinas, who you know wrote, wrote the Summa Theologiae would be enough. Um, but he also wrote four or five other books, often literally at the same time he wrote that one. And um, and uh, and he covers essentially every topic it was possible for a human being in that era to cover from um, from the nature of God to ethics, to politics, to what to do when you're sad. There's a section in the Summa Theologiae about what to do when you're sad. Did you know that? He says to take a hot bath and uh, contemplate the good. 
So, so my cr- my crying in the shower technique um, has uh, and uh, actually tom- Thomistic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and crying is another thing um, you're supposed to do according to Saint Thomas when you're sad. So that is awesome. Yeah, it, but I mean that's the sort of person. And I don't know if you know much about how he wrote. But he dictated those books, and he would work on four or five different things at the same time. And oh, he wow. would he'd have all the people in a room, I believe, and he would go to one person, and he would dictate a paragraph, and then he'd move on to the next person and dictate a paragraph of a different book, and so forth and so on. And, and so he, he, he's literally writing all these books at the same time, which is um, staggering, right? Just unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> Uh, I'd also like to nominate his greatest 20th century heir, Jacques Maritain, who uh, who who is not single-handedly, but largely responsible for bringing Thomism uh, back into uh, to, to philosophy and theology in the 20th century. And and like Thomas, he seems to have been interested in everything and intelligent about everything, and wrote um, uh, maybe not beautifully, but very clearly. On everything, and he he had some some real um, practical uh, effects as well. I, I believe he helped come up with the United Nations uh, Human Rights Declaration. Um, and if if he didn't have a direct hand in that, I know that it's built in part on his thought. So whatever you think of the Human Rights Declaration, uh, Jacques Maritain was important, if only for that. And he did a million other things as well. And then the third might not come as a surprise. I'm gonna um, I'm gonna nominate John Updike, who wrote you know dozens of novels, but also uh, six or seven very large books of occasional prose and literary criticism uh, on really every conceivable topic there is. It's it seems like the New Yorker would just get a book nobody else wanted to review, and they'd send it to Updike, and he'd review it. Uh, Louis Menand said that he read like he was cramming for a test on total world knowledge, and I, I think there's I think there's something really uh, really amazing about that, and 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 really true to the spirit of what we try to do here, uh, although we don't do it as well as any of those guys. Matthew, what would you say? Um, I mean, as far as things that. Christian humanism can help or enhance in the in the life of the church. I mean, you mentioned, we, well, we've all mentioned, I guess, language in the church, homiletics, liturgy, these kind of things. Um, music is an obvious thing. Art. I think it's it's a real shame that so many contemporary churches are constructed and or and ornamented in ways that don't encourage devotion or reverence. Oh, and I think yeah. I think that contemporary Christian humanists could encourage more thoughtful construction and architecture and those kind of things. Um, more broadly, I could I would say that maybe Christian humanists can also remind the church of the value of the past. Um, G.K. Chesterton referred to trish, tradition as being the democracy of the dead, this idea that in the church, even those who've gone before should get a say in things. I think that uh, Christian humanists, especially in their engagement with texts of the past, can can provide a voice for those previous Christians and kind of be their vote. They can redeem truth from the jaws of time, which is a phrase of George Herbert's. Um, in that sense, they provide us a check to the slavish devotion to the now and provide an outsider's opinion uh, and critique of contemporary culture. Um, there's more that you could say on this kind of thing if you read something like C.S. Lewis's classic essay on the reading of old books. And I think that kind of gives me a natural jumping in point on what humanists would I uh, 
uh, nominate as, as important Christian humanists and heroes for those who want to, to think and work like this. C.S. Lewis, of course, is really brilliant in his writing. Um, he wrote fiction, academics, popular theology, uh, and he was really my entrance into what I would say is a thoughtful um, a thoughtful way of being a Christian, about thinking holistically and, and deeply about the world. And I'm sure that he's been that for many other people too, uh, probably including a lot of people listening. Um, the other person I might nominate is Philip Melanchthon. Um, he's not as well known as his as his co-worker Martin Luther, but he's really the second most prominent uh, Lutheran reformer. He's um, He was a professor at Wittenberg, a scholar of Greek, of rhetoric, of the church fathers, scripture, classical literature, and more. He wrote the Reformations for systematic theology. He wrote textbooks on physics and anatomy. He wrote poetry. He basically invented uh, public education for boys and girls, or at least the system of public education that would be uh, the the thing that held sway across Europe until really recent times. Um, and he's also the author of uh, three of the documents that would go on to become part of the Book of Concord, which is the, the, the authoritative collection of Lutheran theological documents. Um, that's the Augsburg Confession, its apology, and then the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope. Um, in addition to these things, he's a father, he's a, a lay person, not a priest, and uh, he's just incredibly important in in so many different areas of of thought of the of the period. Well, I'm going to have to pitch Beat in here. Um, I know he's before the Renaissance and before uh, before that uh, the, the coining of the term, um, but he is also uh, you know, he he was uh, what would later get, become called a, a Renaissance man. You know, writing uh, books. Of history, writing sermons, writing uh, uh, biblical commentaries, but also writing books on uh, the keeping of chronology, um, the, the the form the forms of chronology, um, uh, books on grammar. Uh, he was uh, very concerned with uh, not only telling the stories of of bishops and and saints. Uh, but also uh, was very interested in uh, preserving uh, the stories of, of uh, well, hum- humble, illiterate laity who nonetheless contributed with their art. Um, I'm thinking of Cadman, um, that that first name, uh, hymnodist uh, in in English. Um, also, we are recording this on my son Cadman's birthday, so you know, had to had to that guy. Um. Yeah, and I, I, I consider him w- one of the uh, one of those forces in a time when um, uh, the church was going strong, but the liberal arts, as they had been um, formulated in the classical world and passed down, um, those were in danger of of being um, lost or obscured or forgotten. Um, and he's one of those uh, figures in the in-between times um, that helped keep the memory of those things alive so that in a later time um, they could flourish. Uh, you know, I, th- I, f- I feel like that is one of the functions also that Christian humanists can serve um, because within within the culture and within the church, 
um, the interest in certain certain topics, certain interests, um, they wax and they wane. Um, but those who who sort of continue to be interested in the old books, as you say, Matthew, um, can preserve those things, continue those things, um, pass that uh, that treasure on, so that um, maybe in another time, uh, a more fertile time, a more creative time, uh, those things can bear fruit again. Um, that suddenly that felt way more pessimistic than I meant it to be, <laughs> but yeah. Um, also, you know, we, we have to think about, uh, uh, church, uh, great, great composers who, who did much of their work within ecclesial contexts, uh, like Bach, um, and, uh, the, all of the art that was produced during the Renaissance and after, um, because it's on the wall or on the ceiling, famously, um, of a church. Uh, that that is one that is one thing in which uh, my particular tradition wasn't super helpful. Um, my theological forebears were more likely to put a brick through a stained glass window than to make one. Um, but uh, that I, I am I am grateful for uh, uh, my my Catholic brethren for uh, being a home for art. Uh, in in the way that historically they have been, and for my Lutheran brethren, um, for modeling a a form of Protestantism that didn't think it needed to get rid of all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what are some ways that the relationship between Christian humanism and the church might go wrong? Um, are there ways that Christian humanism can be a good servant of the church, but not not a good ruler? What are some of the temptations or the vices uh, that a Christian humanist might have in an ecclesiastical or a congregational context? What do you think, Matthew? Well, I think Christian, uh, Christian humanists tend to think a lot, and those who think a lot are susceptible to thinking a lot of themselves, too. Uh, there's a temptation towards pride and arrogance in Christian humanism if it's not treated carefully. The idea that we're the wise ones and therefore we should be in charge. I think it's helpful to remember as a result the expression that philosophy is the handmaiden of theology. Um, we're not in charge or, or the philosopher's not in charge. It, philosophy is a good thing. It's a gift of God, but it has limits to what it can tell us about God and about the faith. Um, when we try to let philosophy supplant the self-revelation of God, problems can arise. So we have to respect the limits that exist or we end up going off track. And I think the same is true with really any good thing in culture. Uh, if we begin to place any aspect of human experience above the church, then, then things can start to go wrong. And Christian humanists, with our deep interest in the aspects of human experience can get distracted in some ways. I think there's countless examples of this in the world today. I mean, I've known congregations that have a very a deep interest in art and music, but really little interest in the historic Christian faith itself. And I've known other churches that are uh, very committed to political ideologies, um, whether on the right or the left, and somehow faith seems to get lost in the shuffle. These can be very intelligent people, deeply committed to the philosophical ideas behind uh, their ideas. Uh, but and, and there can be good things in those ideas, but we mistake them for faith at our peril. 
one other, uh, just briefly, one other vice of Christian humanism in a churchly context might be the temptation to forget the weaker brother. Um, the Christian humanist might understand that certain things, whether we're talking about certain kinds of books or music or art or whatever, that these things aren't in and of themselves bad or sinful. But we can forget that these things could be sinful for others if they pursue them without a clear conscience. So we have to take care, as St. Paul says, that we don't use our freedom in such a way that it becomes a stumbling block to the weak. Um, those are just a few of the things, I think, where we uh, where Christian humanists can go off track. Do you have any other thoughts there? Michael? Yeah, I think forgetting your place in the uh, explicit or implicit hierarchy is, is a real danger. Um, I, I, think, uh, I think reading a lot makes you think you know more than you do in some ways, um, especially if you, you read encyclopedically the way, uh, the way I was just praising people for reading. And I, I, I think I think there's a way you can start to think the way you do it is the way it ought to be done, as opposed to you being a sometimes helpful curiosity in the church, which I think is probably the best way to think about ourselves as, as a sometimes helpful curiosity. We're not ministers, um, most of us. Uh, we're not priests. We're not, we don't really have any say in it. And so our job is not to... Um, to say how the how the our job is in some ways to say how the church might do it better but it's it, we we can't um we can't imagine that our saying it is enough to make it so and if it's not made so we can't take that personally we can't think that it was owed to us does that make sense absolutely yeah yeah uh, the you know i i i i feel as if folks um, folks of this bent um, can be liable to sort of wrap the mantle of the prophet around themselves. Yes. You're probably not a uh, prophet. Probably not. But having good <laughs> ideas is good. Like, like it's not that it's not that what we do isn't good. It's just that in the grand scheme of things, it's pretty unimportant. And, and in the grand scheme of things, you're pretty unimportant. And that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> Um, as y'all were as y'all were speaking, I was thinking of a one one real life example, one fictional example. Um, you brought up C.S. Lewis earlier, Matthew. Um, there is a, uh, a a collection of short essays and then transcriptions of, of interviews or or Q and A sessions that uh, that he gave. Um, they were. Uh, the, the one that I have was uh, published under the title God in the Dock, if I remember rightly. Um, but in one of the question and answer sessions, um, he was asked uh, what his opinions of uh, congregational singing were. Because um, apparently uh, at that time there was um, so, some kind of – there were there were some hot debates. The, the, the worship wars of the 1940s. <laughs> <laughs> um and in that, uh, the, the, the question essentially asked, do I have to go to church if I find the music terrible, was sort of the question. And uh, the answer that he gave was that he, he had tended to think of, when, you know, when he, was, when he first uh, converted and began uh, you know, attending um, uh, Sunday worship, 
that they would sing hymns, and he and he tended the the quote is uh, he thought of hymns as uh, it was something like like uh, third rate poetry set to fourth rate music, something like that. Uh, and all he could think about was his own aesthetic displeasure with the music. Uh, but then he goes on to say, I looked down the pew and I saw um, a fellow worshiper, you know, a saint in rubber boots who'd come straight from the garden, um, who was, you know, singing with gusto and worshiping. And his thought was, who on earth do I think I am? <laughs> and so he joined in the singing. Um, so that, so that, that, that temptation to say, um, our tastes are better. Um, can lead us into a position of um, contempt of the tastes of others in a way that may actually be um, and probably is obscuring um, the way in which God's spirit is working through third-rate poetry and fourth-rate music to bring worship in the heart of someone else. Contempt is such um, a poisonous um, feeling, uh, attitude. Yeah. It, it, it yeah. really is. Yeah. The other one is from uh, Chesterton's uh, short story, The Hammer of God, which we talked about on a previous episode, um, it, which describes a uh, uh, one of the characters is, a, is an Anglican. Um, I think he's a curate. Can't remember his precise uh, his precise ranking because I frankly don't understand Anglican church rankings. Anyway, um, whatever he is, uh, he's in charge of a of a of a, a village church that's um, medieval and is described as a kind of like, like a kind of baby cathedral. Um, it has, you know, it has gargoyles and a spire and all the rest of it. Um, but it was rumored um, in the village uh, that he was devoted more to the church's architecture than to God. And that, that, that is, you know, potentially another, uh, another temptation to fight. Um, that our our insight into aesthetic forms or the beauty of a tradition may displace um, the one from whom all blessings flow, uh, and that that can have deleterious effects. Well, we've talked about folks who we've admired in the past. Uh, we've talked about ways in which it can go wrong. Um, if our goal is to serve Christ in the body of his followers, um, how might that end cause us to pursue Christian humanism differently? Um, what would it look for, look like for us to not merely be Christian humanists, but churchly humanists on purpose? Michael? This is a tough question. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um Years ago, I sent an email to Ralph Seawood, who is a professor of Baylor, professor at Baylor. He he wrote a number of books on literature. I was asking him a question about John Updike, and he wrote back and he said something that I've thought about weekly since then, um, which is that he sees his writing as in the service of the church as much as anything, and I. I wish I'd written him back. Maybe I should. I mean, he's still alive. Maybe I should send him an email and ask what he meant. Because I've wondered what it means for an academic in particular, somebody like Wood, who's writing primarily for other academics, what it means that he sees that as serving the church. Because I would like to know, and I would like to be able to do that. And I don't even write academically anymore. 
Um, I write um, for a much, much more popular audience than for an academic audience now. And even I don't know. I mean, I, I, I could say that I'm writing in order to um, to help people, but really I, I just feel like I have something to say and I want to say it. So <laughs> I would love to know how to do that more churchly. I will say this, um, as, a, as a new Catholic, um, one thing I am doing to serve the church is not speaking a lot as a public Catholic, because I, th I think there's there's lots and lots of Protestants who convert to Catholicism, and then before they've really had a chance to get integrated into the church, before they really learn what it's like to be Catholic, they go around spouting off about Catholicism, and I've, I've tried very hard not to do that. Obviously, I still speak publicly on the show every week, and I still write, but I, I try not to do it um, as a capital C Catholic. You know, I, I just I don't think that's my job. Maybe it, maybe 15 years from now I'll feel differently, but uh, I, I right now I'm serving the church by not speaking for the church. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it, it's it's not as if. Uh, the church doesn't actually have some people who can do that in a rather official way right. if they wish to. <laughs> right. And I, I don't want to get too much into like uh, the, the inter-Nicene struggles of celebrity Catholics right now, um, but there's a lot going on there that I don't really want to contribute to in any, any way. No, I get that. Though I, I will say that you know I've I've appreciated those you know the essays that you've written in a more popular context and uh, I I think that is a um that that is also a a a service um, maybe not a large service but not every service needs to be a large service. No, I think that's um, true. I think I think that's probably something to keep in mind that that being of service does not mean being recognized. Um, intellectuals are not good at that one, though. <laughs> no. We love our philosopher ropes. <laughs> what about you, Matthew? Well, I think um, I think it'd be easy to think of Christian humanism in in terms that are primarily personal, um, as if the learning and thinking we do is mostly for our own intellectual or spiritual benefit. At least I think I'm, I'm guilty of that kind of thinking. Uh, thinking about these things for just uh, for just me. Um, but being churchly humanist means that we really do have to remember the body of Christ, that we're part of this body, that we exist in community with fellow Christians and with Christ our head. That means, as we've said I think several times now, that we have to be humble. We're only one member of the body and we're not the head. Um, and I think that also means uh, we should learn to humbly recognize the good that Christ is giving us through the real members of the local body of Christ and not just look for that good in books, which is, I think, the temptation for me. Um, at the same time, I don't think we can denigrate the part that we can play in the body. Um, we need to figure out what talents we have and use them in ways that build up the church. But as as you say, that can be complicated um, and it might just be the smaller parts, smaller parts than we would like to play. I don't know. Um, those are just some of my little thoughts. One of the ways that you've served uh, your your church, Matthew, is is by being um, 
a a a public um, not necessarily a, pub, a public voice, but the one who I suppose uh, has been tasked at certain times to to frame uh, the words for uh, the the public voice. Um, you know, also you know, edit, editing uh, editing a magazine, managing. Um, I believe you you were managing content for the website, things like that. Um, has and, and I, you don't need to you know sort of get into con- any kind of confessional or or, or storytelling modes, but uh, I would imagine that some that 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 has has sometimes involved um, having to make your make yourself the the subject of those that you speak for, even as you are choosing the words, um, that it's not it's not always your ideas um, or the ways that you would necessarily frame it, but you have to recognize I don't I don't I don't speak for me in that in that sense. Yeah, I think um, as a communications person in, in general, that's that's uh, it can be a struggle. Uh, I think I felt more of that struggle when I worked in government rather than in the church, I'll be honest, um, when you're, you have to repeat the, the messaging of, of the agency that's, that you're hired by. In the church, it's, it's a little different because, uh, I mean, I more or less stand behind the ideas that we're communicating. Yeah. Um, but you do try to bring your own gifts um, of writing, of of rhetoric and things of this nature uh, to the expression of things, because I mean th- there are ways of, there are ways where you can tell truth in positive ways and and in ways that are going to shut people off. And I, I try very hard to foster a spirit of ironicism in, in the work I do um, as a communications manager and in the magazine too to 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 foster that kind of. Um, careful reflection and thinking um, in, in ways I hope that that benefit readers. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, reading an article some years ago about, uh, I can't, I can't remember who was writing it. It wasn't you, um, was lamenting the difficulty within whatever Lutheran communion it was that they were, that they were writing from within um, the, the difficulty of sustaining um, that, that, that tone and that approach in in uh, a, a time that of, of sort of inner contention, um, because everybody wanted to be Luther and pound the podium and stay here I stand. <laughs> Lutherans can be very good at that sometimes. <laughs> um, there's a there's a pretty uh, good line where Luther. Uh, talks about the difference between him and Melanchthon, and he talks about Luther. He says, or he talks about himself. He says, "I come along storming with thunder, and Melanchthon comes after me planting flowers." And I've always wanted to be the guy planting the flowers, not not storming. So. And I wish I wish more Lutherans uh, took that approach. Yeah. Well, we'll have our gardening episode later, and maybe that will be something we can explore. Planting of flowers. <laughs> mm. uh, I'm a uh, I'm a lay teacher in my local congregation. Again, I'm a Baptist, which means um, we don't have 
uh, Southern Baptists don't have a denomination. They have a yearly conference. Sure. And a convention. In which, yes, yeah, a yearly convention in which they elect um, certain bodies that will, for the next year, uh, superintend the cooperative programs of of missions at home and abroad and the various higher educational institutions, notably seminaries, uh, that the Southern Baptist Church sponsors and funds. Beyond that, for the rest of the year, it's just a bunch of churches doing their own thing. <laughs> Which means, uh, for, for me, the, the, in, in my tradition, the local church is, for most of the year, as high as it goes. Um, so, uh, I take, I take being a, being a Sunday morning Bible study teacher or a Sunday morning, uh, study teacher, um, very seriously for that reason. Um, one of the ways that I've tried to be, uh, to be a Christian humanist in that context is to, um, bring the angles of, of church history to introduce people to old books, um, to, uh, Hopefully, uh, communicate a, a taste for, uh, that, that kind of engagement to, um, awaken, uh, an interest and a curiosity, um, in what was said and done before the time in which we live, um, the ways that, uh, the words and deeds of others have, have been the context even for our own best efforts. Uh, and also because, uh, I worship at a church where people come from uh, many uh, economic backgrounds, many uh, ethnic and national backgrounds, and many ecclesial backgrounds, um, I've had to talk about church history um, to people who, uh, they didn't grow up Baptist, they, they, they grew up uh, as, uh, as Methodists or as... Um, uh, they went to a brethren church, uh, you know, Plymouth Brethren Church, or so- something like that. And so uh, it becomes, you know, how do we situate um, those different uh, those different uh, sort of traditions, not just doctrinally but also historically? Um, how do we uh, how do we place ourselves within the big family portrait um, so that we know? Uh, I may not know this fourth cousin of mine, so to speak, but I do remember great aunt so and so, um, <laughs> who we're both uh, we're both in that line of the family. Uh, so, so that kind of ironical ch- church history as genealogy in the big family reunion, um, I feel like that's that's one of the functions that I try to serve um, in my local congregation. Um, the church family history guy who helps us recognize our cousins. Um, you and Katie are both very committed to teaching at your church. I think that's really, uh, really great. Well, it's, um, it's something that we've had. Uh, we've been really blessed with the opportunity for, I'm, I'm especially, um, I, I'm proud of, of the degree to which, uh, my church has, um, cultivated opportunities for, um, the women in our church who are gifted uh, and motivated to teach, to give them opportunities and venues, um, not just to exercise that gift, but also to, to, to grow and expand them. Um, 
Katie doesn't have a stated book budget, but uh, she knows that at the beginning, every time um, a new teaching opportunity rolls around, uh, that our women's pastor will email her and say, what books do you need? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, you know, those kinds of things are... uh, we, we we value I I value that she's valued in that way, um, you know the yeah and the again you know the, these are the, these are, these are ways that we try to serve, um, but there is a constant uh, that constant temptation to sort of wave my PhD at people, right. <laughs> um, but then I have to remember it's a PhD in English. It's not a PhD in theology or church history. Um, you know, I'm not an ordained minister. I don't, you know, I have a credential, but you know, I'm like I'm like that that famous trope of the person who calls themselves doctor whenever they're talking about a subject that isn't actually the thing their doctorate's about. Um, I only so, call myself doctor when I'm making a hotel reservation. <laughs> You Does mean you guys don't respond when you're on a plane and they ask if there's a doctor on the plane? Or? You know, that's never happened to me. Oh. <laughs> it's happened to my wife. She's had to go. But, uh... What is your wife's doctorate in? Oh, not a doctorate. She's she's an actual medical doctor. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, she, she would actually be helpful. She's a physician. I would be like, yeah. I'll, I'll be like well, at, as you die, a leech. Um, would, you be, would you be interested in some meditative uh, old English poetry as you go? Um, that would be my only function. My my uh, to be fair, my plane tickets do say doctor uh, because I figure uh, if they're bumping somebody up, they might see that and think, oh, this guy deserves to be in first class. That's excellent. <laughs> kind of venal. On the other hand, I've never demanded anybody outside of a classroom call me doctor, so I, I feel like I feel like I'm winning that fight. That's awesome. Well, I've enjoyed this conversation on this topic, um, and we've we've pursued the the angles that that I had thought out for us. But what are some thoughts or questions or uh, comments that have this conversation has raised in your mind, Matthew? Well, I think um, it's not really so much a, a comment or a question right now. It's just uh, I want to go away from this, making sure I don't keep it all academic, which, again, is my temptation. Um, You call this episode uh, Christian Humanism in Service to the Church. So I want to be more thoughtful about uh, my own small aspect of that work, to to be more intentional about using whatever talents I have in humble service to others, and to be more prayerful as I go about that work, that God would make something good out of the mess I'm making on my own. So... (laughs) Michael? Uh, just that maybe this podcast can be some service to the church. We've never made a dime off of it. I think one one year we, we started a Kickstarter campaign and paid your cable bill, David. But other, yes, other than that, for which I am... For which I am still um, so grateful as to be almost embarrassed. So, so, you know, I don't know that every time I sit down in front of this microphone, I think, how can I serve the church? But I hope this podcast and the other ones on this network can be of some service to some people. And, you know, I'm always happy when people tell us that it meant something to them. So there's that. Yeah, agreed.
Well, what are we going to be talking about next week? Well, David Bowie died about five years ago, and a lot of people have been talking about David Bowie lately. The um, podcast Political Beats did a three-part episode on his uh, on his catalog, and there's a new podcast called I can't even remember what it's called, um, but it's all about David Bowie. So I, I've had him on the mind a lot, a lot, and so we're going to talk about two David Bowie songs. Um, Space Oddity, which probably everybody knows, and it's very, very bleak sequel, uh, Ashes to Ashes. And we're going to talk about what that means for Bowie's career and kind of what it means for American pop culture from 1969 to 1980. Excellent. So another one of those topics that uh, we are expanding what it means to be a Christian humanist. <laughs> I, I think this one's probably closer to Christian humanism than DuckTales' Treasure of the Lost Lamp. Awesome. Well, I look forward to I look forward to that. Well, dear listener, if uh, you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I have and want to let us know, uh, you can send an email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can comment on our uh, page on Facebook where we are. Uh, you can also post in the uh, comment section for the show notes on our blog, christianhumanist.org. If you didn't, uh, if you didn't like it as much as I did or you have other sorts of comments or questions, well, you know, send us those too. You know, every, all feedback is good feedback. Uh, in the meanwhile, uh, Christian Human, the Christian Humanist podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist radio network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our editor is Michael Farmer. Um, I'm David Grubbs on behalf of Michael Farmer and Matthew Block, wishing you all grand weeks, and leaving you with the words of Martin Luther, let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger.